chapter 2, chapter 1, of course, in the book here was the introduction. Uh, chapter 2, chapter 2 is really the first chapter as far as content, and it, um, it looks at doctrine. Now, if you looked at the table of contents, you might, uh, you might see that the other chapters also deal with doctrine, uh, in fact, specific doctrines. So if you just kind of glance at the table of contents, you can kind of see how he has the book set up a little bit. It's got the introduction that we've done, the doctrine, which actually is a pretty substantial chapter. You notice reading it, it's kind of a long one. And then he gets into particular doctrines, God and man. What is the doctrine of God and the doctrine of man? Uh, the doctrine of the Bible, the doctrine of Christ, salvation, and finally the church. So he's going to run down these different kind of heads of doctrine and compare historic Christianity with, uh, with liberalism or modernism in his time. But he, but he first wants to start with doctrine generally. Right, well, um, so what, what is, as we kind of just approach it, what does that word mean? What does the word doctrine mean? Sure. So, in, in, the, in, in the main, teaching. Right? What, what does the church teach? And um, you might have some friends, uh, Christian friends, who say, well, it doesn't matter what the church teaches. It matters, and then they'll supply something else. Like if people love Jesus, or if they're being discipled, and, uh, or if they're making, uh, you know, if they're evangelists and going to find people and tell them the gospel, those are the things that matter. Uh, the doctrine doesn't matter. Uh, you, you probably have friends like that. And they say some, something along the lines of doctrine divides, but Jesus unites. I don't know if you've ever heard that one. That's a, that's, that's a good one. It's worth at least 25 cents. Um, yeah, and of course... In a second, you ask the question, well, which Jesus are you talking about? Right? Uh, just that, that question is enough to have you neck deep in doctrine to begin with. Right? What does the Bible teach about Jesus? Who is Jesus? How do we recognize him? Just a figment of our imagination that we can apply the name Jesus to? Um, or is there a historical person that's represented in the scriptures that we need to know? And that's the doctrine of Christ. We'll get there as we, as we get there uh, into the chapters. But first, just, just the orientation toward doctrine at all is something worth thinking about. And our church is a bit doctrinaire. Right? We, we have lots of doctrine we teach and we look at. We think that's important. There, there are a number of weak spots we have. But our kind of doctrinal teaching probably isn't on the list. Right? That's probably a warm spot or a strong spot. Um, but that makes us kind of interesting in the mass... Of churches, I think there's a lot less you know, attention to teaching and doctrine in kind of an ordinary evangelical church. Do you ever hear that? Yeah. Uh, the world uses that all the time. There's like the Marshall Doctrine, and there's all kinds of political doctrines that are, that are embedded that uh, most people aren't even aware of. Well, it's full of doctrines. Yeah, right. Yeah. You bet. Yeah, yeah. And it's so. Um, it kind of has become a bad word. Just like, just like the word religion has become a bad word um, in the sense of like. Um, in fact, I just read Eli Pine wrote something like this, like, you know, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I think, well, it's a religion with a relationship. It's, it's not non-religion, although sometimes religiosity or things like that can rub people the wrong way. And people being particularly doctrinaire and having all their all these details exactly right, and if you're not right, well, you, you know, your heretic will see you in hell. Um, I won't see you in hell, but someone else will. Um, that's... That's, that, those can be kind of problems that rub people in the wrong direction. We want to watch out for that a little bit. Darlene? Well, one of the things you mentioned on page 23 is that um, the fact that, for instance, if you say Christ died, that's history. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of 
And that's, that actually was a super helpful little like way to look at it and say, okay, well, there's history. And on that history, we say these are meaningful events in history, and here's why they're meaningful. That's the teaching. That's the doctrine. Right? The doctrine really isn't the history. It's what we understand it to mean. It's what the Bible reveals these events to mean, which is kind of part of this whole thing here, too. So flip to page 15, beginning. Darlene's guys going ahead of ourselves over here. Jumping ahead. Let's read this first paragraph, and uh, we can discuss it in, in conjunction with uh, what that note is on your handout there. How do unclear and deceptive modes of communication impact the search for and loyal devotion to truth? Um, which is what this you know, first couple pages is about. But let's, let's read this first section, this little paragraph here. Modern liberalism in the church, whatever judgment may be passed on it, upon it, is at any rate no longer merely an academic matter. It doesn't just have to do with the schools. It is no longer merely a matter merely of theological seminaries or universities. On the contrary, its attack upon the fundamentals of Christian faith is being carried on vigorously by Sunday school lesson helps and by the pulpit, by the religious press. If such an attack be unjustified, the remedy is not to be found, as some devout persons have suggested, in the abolition of theological seminaries or in the abandonment of scientific theology, but rather in a more earnest search after truth and a more loyal devotion to it when once it is found. So he's, he starts this thing saying, well, there's, there's been a, there have been a lot of problems here at the seminary level. Right? The seminary has been propagating the stuff, and they have been you know, for, for a generation. Um, and it's in the theological schools, and so some people say, well, that's the problem. Get rid of the seminaries, and get rid of this, like, you know, what he calls scientific theology, but modern attempts at summarizing and understanding the Bible, and uh, if, if we get rid of the seminaries and that stuff, it'll be, we'll be better off. And his, his response is, that's, that's not going to work. What is going to work? Like, what, what do we, what's, what's the kind of orientation we have toward this thing that's, that's actually going to be the... Uh, the thing that makes a difference. It's not shutting down the seminaries. What is it? It's like the last thing in the paragraph. <laughs> so there's a good job. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, being faithful and seeking truth, actually seeking what is true, and that's something that I think uh, is largely kind of lost on us to some degree. Like uh, the idea of seeking truth, it's like, well, you got your own truth, right? What's the deal? You have to seek anywhere. It's just like right here. Um, as opposed to actually looking out into the world and weighing out ideas and saying, well, what is true and what is false? What, what matches the reality that we see? What matches the scripture that, and, and so on? What's true? And once we can discern what's true, then our loyalty to it, that we are, we're, uh, we're not just seeking truth, but once we find it, we want it. We want to keep it. We want to um, you know, make as much of that truth as we can and, and understand it as deeply as we can and, and be, uh, be loyal to it. And so there's, a, there's an attitude of Christians that actually is the issue, right? seeking truth and being loyal to it, um, as opposed to seeking other things, academic accolades, uh, originality, other things that might be valued. You know, I'm thinking of academics in particular. Um, but I think that, that comes right down to us as far as are, are we, are you seeking the truth day by day? And is that something that you're kind of familiar with? Or, and maybe you are and call it something else. Um, you, know, you might call it devotions. Uh, or, or something like that, but, you know, there are ideas out there, and some people are particularly able to grapple with those ideas. Other people aren't, right? But Mason's one of them that can, and he wants to figure out what's true, right? With all the high-powered academic stuff he's into, what's, what's true in there? 
And once, once it's discerned as true, well, then we're loyal to that because God is truth. And so I think there's just an orientation we have as Christians toward truth that's important and sets us apart, really, from the world at this point, where truth is just what you make it. There, there certainly is no capital T truth, uh, and it's just a matter of what you think, right? What you feel, what you think, and that's, that's your truth, baby. Um, and off you go. And that's as far as we get on that one, which isn't getting very far at all. You go ahead, Ed, first. Uh, on what you were just saying, uh, I think society's shifting, right? In, in the last, for the last 40 plus years, we've been in this relativism, right? Where you have your truth, I have my truth, everybody has their own truth, and it's, you know, whatever. Sure. Now it's shifting, this new generation coming up, and uh, um, it's. Re, a full rejection of of the truth and and anything else that contradicts what they believe. Hmm. So there, it, we're getting to a place where that relativism is no longer valid, and now falsehood is true. And if you don't hold to it, you're evil, right? There's definitely, I think, an element of that coming, and and maybe been around too. Uh, it's hard to have your finger on the pulse of like what's going on, right? It's like you kind of see it in bits and pieces, and some people maybe have a bit more clarity or see more than others, but it's hard, it's hard to figure out what the impulse of the society is right now, particularly toward truth, right? Uh, but uh, the, the, there is, like, actual truth out there to be discovered. Like, God put, you know, uh, gems in the ground for us to find kind of thing. Like, we've got to go dig them out. We've got to go do the work and dig that stuff out. You know, think about Genesis chapter 1, where the rivers all run out of, uh, the Garden of Eden, and, and, and Moses says, and there's, there's, there's onks and bedellium, and there's all this stuff hidden in the ground out there that men should go find. The sons of Adam need to go work and unearth it. The truth's a little bit like that, that we need to seek after it and dig it up and work on it, and once we find it, we, we, we have something tremendous, right? Uh, so the truth, I think, is articulated in, in doctrine. Right? Teaching is like, here's, here's the teachings, here's, here's what... Here's how we systematize and understand what God has revealed, and we present that as doctrine or truth. And that is, there's an aversion 100 years ago to that, um, and there's certainly an aversion to that now. Any further thoughts, yeah? Yeah, so uh, it's kind of confusing to me a little bit, but the presuppositional approach to it is, thy word is truth. So those, the church of the body of believers, accept that as a given the yeah. Almighty God, who created all things, who loves us, we are His children, has revealed and does reveal Himself to us in in, in the Holy the Sacred Scriptures. Whereas the uh, evidentialists will well, put a, a number of things together. Oh, they, I think that's true because of this and this. And yeah, this. sure, good. And yeah. used and and then okay, one other thing. So the 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 person that says that uh, what what you're saying isn't true. And what they're saying is true is like well, that is that's not even logical. You're you're trying to state a true statement that something else is not true. You know how, who who gave you the the handle on the, the truth that something else is is true or isn't? Yeah, it's like this. They're just it's unre- unreasonable. There you go. That's interesting. Um, I, I particularly want to grab onto that um, um, you know Jesus prayer in John 17. I think is what you had in mind, uh, where Jesus says he sanctify them in your truth, right? Build them up and make them more holy 
by your word, right? So there's that as a central factor for us in truth and truth-seeking and feeding on the Lord is, of course, the scriptures. So that's, that's helpful, uh, which is, you know, that's, as we study this book, we're not really studying the scriptures. We're studying Machen. And we're studying Machen kind of dealing with problems and not necessarily expositing scripture either. So that's just a recognition of kind of what we're doing. Um, flip over to page 16, just the next one. The second to the last paragraph, read just the beginning, is a good place to start in this uh, attacks on doctrine. So he says, such is the way in which expression is often given to modern hostility to doctrine. Uh, but it is, is it really doc, but is it really doctrine as such that is being objected to? And not rather one particular doctrine in the interests of another? And that's, I think, an important little point for us. So oftentimes, and I think Bill's going to get that in a second ago, the issue of doctrine, it gets hazy and people want to say, oh, we don't need that stuff. But what they dismiss on one hand, they bring right back in with the other. They have their own doctrine they want you. It's just not that one. Right? And that's almost always how it is. Watch, just watch for it. Right? So if you see someone who's dogging doctrines, oh, I don't need that, they're going to offer a doctrine to you. And they're not even offering you a doctrine why we need to get rid of doctrine. Right? They might teach you in the sense, some formalized teaching about why we don't need this, which is the irrational part of the whole thing. Right? You, don't get to, you don't really get to escape this. Right? You're, the church is going to have doctrine. It's going to have teaching. The question is, is it going to be biblical teaching or something else? Right? Uh, and that's, that's going that direction there. Um, any thoughts on that, that we're going to have doctrine no matter what? Okay. Well, keep your eye on that because I think it's useful uh, when you're talking to people to, just to ascertain what doctrine they're really trying to get at or, or offer in lieu of or in place of the one that you're the top of 17 here gets to the skepticism and agnosticism. I guess I missed the verbal games, but that's kind of what we're talking about. With the, the we don't believe in doctrine, and we give you a doctrine. Why not? It's like, okay, well, we're just playing games here. Right? Um, we know how to chase tails, and I'm not into it. Um, the skepticism, though, that's the top of page 17. That meaning uh, is perfectly plain. Whatever that meant. The objection involves an out-and-out skepticism. And so, what is skepticism? What does that word mean? And it ties in here with agnosticism just a little bit farther down the... Uh... Yeah, right, okay. Go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, the, you, we use the word skeptic in, in, in the sense of a person who doubts or questions. Um, and and there's, there's certainly value in asking questions, right, and, and trying to figure something out. And sometimes... If you have an idea, the skeptic is the person you want to go to. Say, I got this notion here. Poke some holes in it for me. Right? Show me all the problems. Uh, and they'll show you all the problems that they can see. And then sometimes that's very helpful. Right? Certain people are like that and have that. But I think there's a mindset that you get into where it's like, yeah, we can't really, we, we can't really know anything. Right? We don't have the power to, to make uh, statements of truth about anything. In fact, we are even skeptical if there's truth at all. Right? So it's, it's a continual questioning of things without ever coming down to answer something. That's what a skeptic is. Okay? Continually questioning, but never really giving answers. Right? Because questioning is easy. You can seem really smart, by the way. You just ask some questions and you know, uh, poke holes in people's ideas, and then walk away having actually you know, affirmed nothing. Right? Not, not even taught anything, just having poked holes in everyone else's thoughts. And you kind of seem smart that way, but that only goes so far. Right? We've got we to gotta have something to build on. We have to have truth, and if, if, if the skeptics or the agnostics is maybe in a, in a larger kind of in, 
instantiated way, say, well, we can't really know truth, and we're just kind of hovering here, the twisting in the breeze. Well, you don't really have anywhere to go from there. Right? You kind of, yeah, darling. Right. Yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, even to the point of like, like becoming irrational as we deal with things because it doesn't matter. Right? Saying something like all creeds are equally true is just stupid. Right? I mean, it's like you, you don't even know what a creed is or what true is or you know, like any of those words. I don't think you know what they mean if you say something like that. Um, but those things get passed off. Right? Like, yeah, that kind of sounds right. Oh, sure. It sounds kind of pious or whatever. And that's actually one thing you see, you see in Machen is the sound of pious words. We got to get rid of those. Uh, people come into the church and they just feel good because they hear churchy words, but the meanings of those churchy words are very silly oftentimes, and they're just having a feeling around something that's sacred to them and not actually engaging with the truth of God or with God Himself uh, as, as they come to worship and, and serve. And that's, I think, an important thing to understand and make sure. Yeah, it's not much different than what like the cults do, right? I mean, because Mormonism, I can mean, sit there and they can tell you something, and it sounds exactly like our gospel, but they're hollowed out meanings don't mean what the Bible says, right? The difference with the, with the Mormons, though, there's definitely the, like, verbal game. There's this kind of the, the verbal game of this means what? You know, uh, but they have something to teach. They got goofy doctrine they want to teach you, right? Where the agnostic here probably doesn't have a whole lot to teach you. He just has a lot of questions to ask and say, well, a lot of shrugs and hugs. Maybe no hugs. Lots of shrugs. Uh, so there's the same kind of, like, obfuscation or like uh, equivocation on words. Here's, here's a Christian term, and here's what we're really meaning over here, and here's what historic Christianity is meaning. And that's what Machen's doing here with liberalism. So very much the same as something like Mormonism, where they want to hijack the forms and change the content. And in this case, the content for the agnosticism is like not much. <laughs> Just much question marks, right? Um, it seems, though, that taking that agnosticism and kind of what Ed was saying, like it's turned from... They don't actually run into very many agnostics anymore. They don't say that anymore. Yeah. It, it is more a postmodern type of, this is my truth, right? And again, it used to just be, yeah, you have your truth, I have my truth. But now it's not. And maybe they don't have anything to teach, but you must embrace their truth mm-hmm. as true. They do have a sword. I am a man trapped in a woman's body, and you must embrace that. Mm-hmm. It's not just like you don't have to believe it. No, you, we're, we're asked to believe that now. And maybe throw confetti along the way. Yeah. You bet. That's interesting. Um so, yeah, you, you don't hear much about the agnostic now, but I think 100 years ago and before, 150 years ago, you heard a lot about him. And he, I think he mentions in here that this, you know, 50 years before, this was like the major attack on the church was this agnosticism, right? This kind of instantiated skepticism. Um, uh, but you don't hear much of that anymore. You're right. Uh, but it'll come back, or it comes back under a different name. Um, anyway, so there's, there's that one as far as an attack on doctrine. You know, what can we really know? Let's, let's just be humble and not make affirmations. You get that with Erasmus. Um, it's Luther, right? The, the freedom of the will that, that Erasmus writes Luther. He says, I prefer not to make, uh, um, you know, positive statements. Right? I prefer not to assert anything, says Erasmus. And Luther's like, flames shooting out of his head. You, what you, you're a Christian that prefers not to assert something? Uh, right? So that's, that, that's kind of like this. That's this kind of, anyway, you, you get the, the, the picture of how these people are, uh, and they're kind of smug in their intellectualism, but they really don't have anything to offer. There's nothing positive there. It's just a bunch of questions and confusion. We need questions. We need to sort out confusion. So there's value there. But it's an attack on doctrine for sure, which is what he's after. 
The third one, which is probably closer to our circles and people that we know, is uh, what I've got in here is, it's life, not doctrine, man. Um, right? We don't care about all this teaching. We don't care about 33 chapters of Westminster. We just need to live for Christ. Right? We need to offer ourselves as, as living sacrifices, like Paul says there, that doctrine of living sacrifices. Um, right? So you, 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 you kind of get the power of that. Say, so yeah, okay, well, how we think about this and that doctrine or how we kind of parse this thing out maybe isn't as important as just loving our neighbor. But that's just making enemies of friends. That's all that really is. That's just a false dilemma. You should love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor yourself. And so to say, well, I need to love the Lord with my heart, not my mind, is to say, well, God's told you to do all of it. Right? So you're, you're, you're making in, uh, enemies of friends there, is what I like to say. Um, so we need to love the Lord with our minds, as well as the rest of our capabilities and, uh, and, and so on. Um, anyway, any, any thoughts on that one? I think that's something you'll hear a lot just among friends, among Christian friends, you'll kind of get this one coming at you. Yeah. Well, I mean, we live what we believe, right? And so we get what we believe from doctrine. And if we believe a lot, then we live a lot. So, I mean, that, that, that's the notes I have here. It's like, if, if doctrine's not important, then if we start believing a lie, our whole life is going to be living a lie, and we're, we're not living truth, and God's true, right? So we're off base. Yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely a connection between how we think and how we live. Doctrine impacts how we think, right? That's what doctrine does. It, it, it impacts our thinking and therefore impacts our living, right? They're connected. They're not uh, just separate spheres of you know, your mind's over here and your wife's over there. They're, they're bound together, and your mind is more fundamental than kind of anything else. Right. How you think is how you live, like I was just saying. So, it's, again, it's, it's kind of making a division where there really isn't any. There's a distinction between how we think and how we live. Sure. Yeah, we can talk about that, but there is no real division. Um, our, our, our minds are part of our life, and uh, fundamentally. So, any other thoughts on that one? That's, that's a valuable one to kind of work through and think through a little bit, because, like I say, you'll, you'll get it as you talk to folks. Uh, you doctrinaire Calvinists, you... Um, any other thoughts on that one? I think therefore I am a <laughs> That puts the yeah, out interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll leave that one alone. Yeah. It's just kind of a mystery to me why people who want to, who don't want to adhere to the Christian doctrine even want to be called a Christian. You know, it's kind of, I think of that guy in the, one of those American Gospels. Yeah. I can't remember which one it was, but he was like, man, that last version of God I made up was awesome. He was just <laughs> like me. Like, he was me, right? And it's like, I don't understand why you want to change the Christianity instead of just reject the Christianity. It's just kind of a mystery. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's kind of a mystery here. And, and 100 years ago also, it's like, well, you're just doing something different, so why don't you just go do something different? And, of course, some answer is, well, all the money's here. All the pomp is here. You know, I think... Being a, being a churchman in the early 20th century and in the 19th century meant more. I think the farther back you go in American history, the more it means to be a pastor, the more general respect you have from the, you know, the community. And so you got the robes, you got the money, you got the pomp, you got all that, you know, this kind of like respect. And, and you got a voice, you got a place to like teach a pulpit and so on, right? So giving up all that and say, no, we're not really a Christian, we're going to go over here, requires a good deal of honesty that it appears that they don't have, right? Yeah. So with the, the departure of that pomp and that money, do you first, do you 
see those who are um, have gone away from true Christian doctrine, say, like those branches of United Methodists who are fully embracing the the alphabet and um, and going that way. Do you see them forsaking the name Christ in the future, or is um, publicly? You're right, um, explicitly. Um, or pro- probably not. Maybe so. Uh, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's it's a little bit like I don't know. It could go that way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem to have gone that way. Like in other words, the liberal churches for the last hundred years haven't. You know, they'll they'll they'll, they'll fly whatever flags the world's flying and say we're doing this stuff, but they never come around and say no, we don't believe in Jesus anymore. Exactly. Potentially, I'm just thinking out loud. Potentially because they they can. They embrace that concept, their their perverted concept of love and Christ is love sure. and God is love. Yeah, and, and and even as we go on in this chapter, right? Like you know, they start saying, "Well, we don't need Paul; we just need Jesus." Then you like look at Jesus, and say, "Well, that's kind of dicey too." We don't need all of Jesus; we need to, you know. They kind of start working it down until it fits what they want, and then they stay there. They keep that. That's that's their Christianity. That's real. So I think that they're trapped in that lie, right? And therefore. Uh, if it's exposed, maybe they'd say, okay, I guess we don't need Jesus too. But while well, it stands, they know we got Jesus, and he's here just like everywhere else, and there's a rainbow flag. You know, um, so, yeah, it's interesting to see, but it hasn't seemed to have gone that way as far as this outright rejection in the last hundred years, so much as this subverting Christianity by bringing in all sorts of other things and not really doing much Christian stuff, you know, being like Unitarians or something. Um, yeah. All right, let's keep trucking here as we have about ten minutes. And I thought a move, yeah, that's the next one, page 23 there, is kind of these attacks on doctrine. Uh, So I asked that question, how do Christian origins and Paul's doctrine and life jive with with this idea of of not doctrine? Uh, But that ties in with 1 Corinthians 15. Which, again, we're sort of going to page 23, I'll read 1 Corinthians 15. And it's of interest for a number of reasons. I was mentioning one the other day that, you know, we, we think oftentimes of Paul as um, as generating or originating Christian thought and doctrine. Um, but that's often not the case. That he's a part of a church that had already been going on and is receiving from that church and in, in also as he teaches and, and does his apostolic thing in the church as well uh, and giving what God's given to him as far as revelation, right? He's a... Uh, using, you know, he's he's a, a, a means of revelation, but at the same time, he's part of the church that's going on. And so he receives things and passes them on, as we read here. Um, so, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15. Um, try to think in here, like, and, you know, as you're maybe getting a picture of the modernist or the liberal Christ, what they try, what, the, what they have in mind. And oftentimes what they have in mind is God is the father of everybody. Um, Jesus came to, like, exemplify good things. Um, and even give himself up to death for other people or whatever, that, you know, that might be an example of how good he is, and that we should similarly just kind of be good and live our lives according to these principles that God's made the world to function with. Um, is that Christianity? Is that what the early church taught? Is that what we see in the scriptures? And this is a good example of not. It's like, well, there's a lot more going on than just that, than just this liberal or modernist doctrine. For I delivered, Paul says, to you as of first importance what I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely board, he also appeared to me. So if we look at that as like a, a, a thumbnail, like a summary of, of kind of the most important things uh, that Christianity is, these kind of central doctrines, what doctrines are there? What, what's being taught there? What do you see in that passage from 1 Corinthians 15? And how does it weigh into this discussion or debate that Mason's having um, 100 years ago? So first of all, what's there? That's the easiest part is to look at the text and say, oh, here's what's here. Okay, so indications of actual events. Jesus went ahead and, like, lived and died and rose from the dead. What's that? And then appeared to me. And then, okay, and then you've got the resurrection and the physical appearance. So there's there's an event that occurred there, right? Paul wrote about it. The church wrote about it. It In fact, it was written about beforehand because he, yeah, this is all in accordance with the scriptures. So, and he died for our sins which is a redemptive reality. He, didn't just, he wasn't just an example showing how to be a nice dude and give himself up for people that were kind of jerks or whatever, um, but he actually died for our sins. There's a messianic reality there that's built in, which, which is important in the rest of the chapter for, for Machen, because one of the things that the liberals want to strip away is this kind of embarrassing messianic thing. You know, a blood sacrifice and... Um, uh, uh, trying to think of the right word, where... Uh, Substitutionary atonement, where, where God punishes his son instead of punishing us. and Those things kind of get embarrassing to people. And still, with the, kind of, the more modern versions of the same kind of perversion, they still don't like that stuff. And so they want to kind of just step away from that and not pay much attention to it. But that's like the central thing. <laughs> it's like the heart of the thing. Uh, and that's the amazing part is Paul says, hey, I'm going to tell you the gospel. And liberals say, la, 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 la. We don't need that gospel. We've got our own. Thank you. Right? We've got Jesus who's a good man and just, you know, whatever. That kind of thing. So you know Jesus who is the one who gave himself up to death for our sins, according to the scriptures, and rose from the dead. Right? That's the central part of the gospel, is the life and events, the work of Jesus. Right? Who he is and what he did. You know? It's not just the New Testament. They, will, they, they, all want to, they all essentially become anti-Semites because they want to destroy everything, the Jews, that the sacred scriptures were delivered to. Sure, that's, that's our, a good point. It's there for everybody to read. Yeah, liberals probably haven't been very good friends of the Jews no. or to like Jewish history or the, the Old Testament. The Hebrew text. Sure, yeah. And the, uh, and the embarrassment of being old and not modern. That's the, the, the liberals are always embarrassed by the antiquity of these things, which is interesting because if you kind of step back past the Enlightenment, the antiquity of the thing is like, hey, that makes it shine. That's what you want. You want antiquity or idea. You don't want something fresh and new. That's crazy. That's going to lead everyone astray. It's the old ideas that are the, clearly the good ones. But you kind of get into the Enlightenment and the modern world and shifts it around. So the old ones we don't need at all. Everything fresh and new is what we want. The most recent study is the truth. Until the recent study comes out after that and then after that. Right? So I get this like goofy epistemology of, of understanding the knowledge and truth that goes on here. Other thoughts on the First Corinthians 15. I think it's a wonderful like tack he takes here to say, hey, well, does this match up? Here's, here's the model. Which ones that match? The liberal one or the, uh, the historic Christian one? And clearly, it's the historic Christian one. The creeds say the same thing, right? The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed and stuff, say what this is saying. 
right? The liberals aren't saying what this is saying. So that's, that's a good contrast with a very central text to do it with, 1 Corinthians 15. Any other thoughts? Then, let's look at the next one here and see if we can't make it through it before the time is up. So flip the page to 24. And he has this kind of historical analysis as well of the apostles, right? Um, I don't know what you guys think of the apostles. Maybe you think they all have capes and they like fly around because they're like super Christians. Um, and he, he's like, no, that's, that's not how it was. And in fact, uh, this is kind of central paragraph on page 24, yet those same weak, discouraged men, within a few days after the death of their master, instituted the most important spiritual movement that the world has ever seen. What had produced this astonishing change? Um, right, so then he says they've been given new equipment, a little later on in the paragraph, given new equipment for their task, and the equipment is the, uh, the announcing of the resurrection of Jesus. That it didn't end with death, that God raised him from the dead, right? And, and, and that from being like weak and beggarly and scared and full of fear to the resurrection of Jesus, and suddenly everything's different now. And suddenly these apostles are different. Then you add Pentecost to that, and it's like rocket fuel, right? So what accounts for this historic change um, from these men who are despondent and weak to men who are full of vigor and fire and and turn the world upside down. Uh, well, an event occurred. Something happened. <laughs> that's what that's what is arguing. It's not just that Jesus pronounced some world principles and said, hey, you know, treat people right and don't, you know, dump dirt and gravel in your friend's cereal and do things like that and everything's going to be okay. Um, you know, just general principles of living, like, you know, 40 days of life or your best life. Now, that's all that stuff is. They're just kind of drawing from the Bible or wherever. Just general principles of living and it's like, okay. I can dig that. That's, there's, there's wisdom in that. But that's not the gospel. Right? The Bible's full of that kind of wisdom. We can read and learn how to live and, and interact in this world. Uh, but that's not what God's given us the scripture for. God's given us the scripture to point to Jesus to redeem us from this world and in it. Right? Um, so there's a supernatural work of redemption that's the centerpiece. And the liberals are always trying to take that out. The supernaturalism they don't like. Right? They like things just to kind of bump along and move normally, and we can just you know use our scientific endeavors and, and study the way things are. But as soon as you enter a supernatural, something beyond nature, above nature, they start getting nervous. Uh, now, any thoughts on on this particular one, though? The, the change in the men. What? Yes. You, you alluded to it because he keeps it, he, he leaves it out. Pentecost. Okay. Yeah. Of the Holy Spirit. That's when things changed. Really. Yeah. Significantly. Impacted, Especially right? going outward. Right. Yeah. That's when boldness comes. Yeah. That's when clarity of thought, able to understand the word. And articulate in front of whoever. Articulate. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there, the resurrection, big piece for the Holy Spirit, just as much. Yeah, absolutely. And, it's, of course, it's the risen Christ ascended, pouring out a spirit, right? right? So it's this ascended Christ doing this work. It's all, it's all of, a, of one all thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Bob. I guess. So the liberals can't abide by what can't be proved to science? I guess so. Um, I 
like the supernaturalism. They can't dig it. Yeah, like they're, they're naturalists. And there, he gets at it, I thought, I thought in the introduction, he was talking about the naturalism kind of in, in this kind of theological realm that it, it goes other places too. But, uh, yeah, just simply what is and what we can perceive is what there is. And if there's anything beyond that, either the agnostic tip, we don't really know and we can't know it, or the atheistic side say, no, we can't know and there isn't anything out there. Right? This is all there is. And they kind of operate with those parameters. Right? They operate in that. Um, yeah, Darlene. Sure, right. From the, it's one thing to have anticipations. It's another thing to have those anticipations totally trashed, right, which is where they're at until the resurrection. It's like, oh, okay, well, hang on. There's something different going on here, and that's exciting. And then Pentecost is like, then they go, right, then they know. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of all important in the piece there. Um, here, this is the bottom of page 24. Let's kind of read this, the last part of the paragraph. The great weapon with which the disciples of Jesus set out to conquer the world was not a mere comprehension of eternal principles. It was an historical message, an account of something that had recently happened. It was the message, he is risen. And so that's, again, it's, it's contrasting this thing we can end here. The, the liberals really want to just kind of talk about eternal principles or wisdom in life from the scriptures and stuff like that. And, and again, this is the your best life now kind of stuff. Right? That's what you're reading when you're reading your best life now. Is, is the, and it's not like it's untrue, right? Living principles from the Bible. Like, okay, this is good. sometimes they're silly or whatever, but um, okay. But that's not what, you know, the Christians didn't turn around and say, hey, we have a real good, solid view of eternal principles we want to lay on you here. No, we got a message about a man who died on the cross and rose from the dead, and the whole world's different now. We got a message about an event that occurred that has meaning for us. Okay, and that's again history. And then the doctrine. The history is Jesus died. The doctrine is he died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Okay, so there's, there's the doctrinal part right from the beginning, passed on to all Christians. Right? What I received, I'm passing on to you. This is, you know, this is the catechism of the church, the early church. This is the, the things that they're saying and passing along for their doctrine. And it is Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Right? That's the doctrine of the early church based upon the event of Messiah's death and resurrection. Not the same thing as eternal principles and points of wisdom that we like to share and have your money, thank you, um, and so on. So we'll, we can stop there. Um, I think it gets us to a point here. Yeah, page 26 there. So we didn't get quite as far as I was hoping. And I, I didn't give the, um, the, the notes for the end of the chapter. They're probably like six or eight pages back there that I didn't have any notes for. I'll email those to you and we'll just continue on as we go and make the progress that we make rather than trying to fit the whole chapter together or something like that. Especially this one's big. I think maybe in the smaller chapters we might be able to do it in one week. But this one has a lot in it. Um, and it's kind of, uh, you know, it's not coming at doctrine the way we ordinarily come at particular doctrines thinking about. It's coming at doctrine in general, right? And that's that's an interesting thing to think through and probably unusual for us. Darling, do you have something? 
That's what I'll do. I'll pick up right there, so pages 26, 28 on the, on the notes, and then I'll email you the other notes that will be the rest of the chapter, and we'll just kind of keep plowing through that way. Um, if that works for you, or if someone has a better idea, let me know. Um, I'm open. So let's, uh, let's close with a word of prayer.